Hello, welcome to the Crowbar PC Gaming Podcast. This is episode 361, and it is the 12th of March, and my name's Tom Senior. I've decided to bravely host <laughs> the intro to this, uh, but fortunately I've got backup, and the backup comes in the form of Marsh. Hello. And also Graham. Hello. And I left Graham to last because he's the one who's been playing the most interesting thing I want to hear about. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it's uh, going to so, be a disappointment. Oh no, really? Uh, so this is Maquette, I believe. Yes, this is a first-person puzzle narrative game called Maquette. That's M A Q U E T T E. Uh, I don't actually know what that word means. That's the sort of research that I do for this podcast. But <laughs> um, it is a puzzle game where the central gimmick is that it's recursive. The world is recursive. Um, what that means in this context is there is a little version of the world that you're in within the world that you're in and the world you're in is a little version of a world that you're also within oh god i'm explaining this badly uh, <laughs> I, I can explain it with a practical example so it's, you've got a little model of of the world that you're in at the center of that world and you can drop say uh, a square block into that little model and that square little square block becomes also a very large square block in the actual world you inhabit. Oh God, help me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hopefully that makes sense. But essentially it's, it's, it's like a Matryoshka doll, (laughs) but all of the versions of that doll are linked. So the changes you make in one are uh, take place within another. And then you solve that. You use this to solve puzzles to unlock doors and um, clear gates, basically to your progress. So an example might be, um, you you can't you can't move uh, a ladder because it's it's too large. Uh, but you can move the little version of that ladder in the little tiny model world because that's very small. And wherever you move it in the tiny model world, it moves in your world um that's a very basic example uh but this is i think i said before talking about a previous game that i feel like portal maybe tricked people into thinking there was fair tower ground to be found in first person puzzle games Hmm. and maybe there's just not because i feel like i've played a lot of first person puzzle games that have an interesting gimmick but then don't cohere and don't uh don't manage to advance that that puzzle that central concept in the way that uh some of the like 2d brethren maybe do and maquette is uh i'm just gonna say it it's bad it's a bad game oh, and no. it's a bad puzzle game and it's a bad story so it uses this kind of puzzle this the kind of the concept of big things and little things and them being linked as a means to tell a story about a relationship and specifically that a relationship that goes wrong over the course of the game. Um, but it's incredible and it's it's trying to use the the big things little things as a metaphor for the way and sometimes that a relationship can fall apart without there being any big dramatic thing that happens. It can just be little things that accrue over time, little things that maybe seemed big at the time, but weren't really. uh, And the two people maybe drift apart over time. But it does, uh, first of all, the two main characters uh, called Michael and Kenzie 
I found them fairly insufferable. <laughs> they are uh, the worst. Just, I mean, they're a, a kind of stereotype. There, it's, it's, it takes the story is takes place in San Francisco. Uh, they meet in a coffee shop. They spend a lot of time going to the park and painting together. Um, and they have no actual problems and seemingly no real personality and no discernible connection. They just kind of like coastal elites in the worst <laughs> possible way. And I say this as a man who lives on the coast and spends far too much money on drinking coffee out of doors. Like, I am this person. Uh, but I, d- I don't necessarily want to watch... A, a story about me um, and I don't think it does a good job within that story of conveying anything of their relationship like this, the story is communicated in a couple of different ways so there is text that appears in the world as you're walking along it kind of like fades in on the walls and it's useful for telling you that you're going in the right direction if you get a new bit of text you haven't seen before and then there are these um, kind of 2D animated cutscenes uh, in between puzzles that advance the story where there's voiceover on those bits, it's voice acting. Um, but you don't, I didn't feel like I got any insight into relationships or why relationships fall apart or why this specific relationship fell apart. There's very little to actually grasp onto about why anything happens in the game like why do they like each other why do they get together why does it fall apart and the details you do get are things like uh she gets annoyed that he leaves empty seltzer bottles around the house (laughs) and even the fact that it's seltzer uh it just (laughs) makes me want to chew my own hand off a little bit there's lots of things like that and then this story bears almost no actual connection to what you're doing like the, the the metaphor is so flimsy of that it just doesn't connect to the puzzles that you're that you're actually doing which mostly involve like orbs <laughs> mostly involve like taking a red orb and moving that close to a red force field so that you can pass through the red force field and then working out how you get the blue orb out from inside the house to the red force field and that sort of stuff you've never done this during your marriage (laughs) um no it's never it's never come up but then we're not married technically so well there you go (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's why um but and and uh, and then beyond that like i don't think it functions particularly well as, as a puzzle game like the it's, there are different ways to make puzzle games, and I'm not an expert, but it's artificially constrained sometimes. So, for example, those red orbs, my initial instinct was, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll take the red orb um, that I need to be close to this force field, and I'll take it to the little mini version of the world in the center, because that's where the puzzles thus far have kind of focused around, and I'll place the red orb close to the force field in the little mini version and that will presumably turn it off in the bigger version but you just you can't do that that you can't put the orb down near the force field it just stops you from being able to put down close to any version of it and that just feels like a really artificial rule to designed to stop you coming up with the really obvious solution that would solve the problem uh, and then at that point the solutions that you're then doing instead a lot of the time don't really make the best use of 
the recursive nature of the worlds and the different scales of it. It also does a thing a lot of the time where it, it it's unclear what problem you're trying to solve or why you're trying to solve it. Like you will get a cutscene that will tell you something about the the relationship, or there will be a little a little scene will play out, but that doesn't relate in any way, except in the the thinnest of metaphorical ways to the world that you're in, which is this kind of. Um, I think I think the idea is meant to be that it's sort of representative of their sketchbooks that they made together, that you're kind of like inhabiting their drawn world in some way and so it has this lovely colorful kind of ornate fairground kind of aesthetic kind of like all the houses look like little dollhouses and that sort of stuff um but because the cutscene doesn't really set anything up for the next chapter that you're about to play through uh very often i found myself feeling like i found the solution to a problem before i discovered what the actual problem was like i would be given a key and then just be like, well, I guess I just wander around now until I find the lock. And I don't know what direction I'm supposed to be heading in. And more importantly, I don't know why. <laughs> why am I heading in that direction? Now I can see there's like a three creepy looking houses over there. I guess that's where I should go because that's the only place I can go. But it felt a lot of the time like I was hunting around. Um, and that always felt quite unsatisfactory when I then did discover where the puzzle was that I was trying to solve. Like there was never a point of, oh, I posed an interesting challenge that I shall now try to solve. It was more like I'm given a solution and I'm looking for a problem. Uh, and it ne never felt nice. The other, pro other problem it has is that, you know, the, the world is recursive in both directions. So the world that you're in has a smaller version of itself within it. Um, but the world that you're in is also a smaller version within a bigger world. And so there are puzzles that involve leaving the bounds of the world that you're in and entering into that bigger version. And that's like, that's a cool concept. And it feels as if you have broken through the walls of reality in some way when you pop out like that. Like that's, that's really cool. But the scale of it obviously means that when you pop out into that larger world, you're very small and the distances are really large. And it, doesn't have a good solution to that like having to walk <laughs> enormous distances to test puzzle solutions that might be wrong and might not be puzzles at all because you're just wandering around looking for where the puzzle is uh if you walk a long distance and it turns out nope that's not what you were meant to do actually you were supposed to do something over on the tiny version of the world and uh, now you just gotta hold down w for a long time and walk back um and again, that felt feels really crappy. And like, there's lots, lots of like talent on display in this game. I would say, like, it does. Like, it's got a lovely color palette. It looks really nice. It's got a great soundtrack. Like, they've licensed a bunch of um, actual pop and rock songs, but it doesn't cohere into a whole. And like, uh, the music is another example where I like each individual song, but they all sort of feel like intro and outro songs to movies like you can imagine them playing over the credits at the beginning or the end of a romantic film um but that's throughout the entire game and so it's a game where there's there's, there's like eight songs that all feel like the outro credits that's really weird and then those songs because they're all actual pop songs are like two and a half three minutes long 
And so you will be walking through an area, a song is playing, it's setting a mood, but then the song will end and you're still walking through the area and now it's just kind of eerily silent because it feels like they got signed by Anna Parna at some point and got <laughs> a bunch of money to do the soundtrack, but that was like after the levels had been built. And there's lots of other little things like that as well, like the text that appears in the world on the walls, there's typos <laughs> in it at certain points, which feels really strange. Um yeah, I, I, all of it feels like the puzzles as well. Like some of the my my problems with the puzzles, I I feel like would be fixed if you did a lot more player testing and feedback. Like if you gave it to people, um, and saw the ways in which they they muddled and struggled through. I I feel like that's the sort of thing that a company like Valve, with its infinite resources, can iterate for. There may be these smaller teams that are making games like this. And um, what's the one? What, what's the one that changed names a bunch of time? And so now I can never f- remember its name. Where they're like, it's another game where you're playing with s- scale using forced perspective to change the size of objects. Superluminal, perhaps. Yes, yeah. that's the one. Um, I feel like it has some similar problems to Superliminal. And so, you know, maybe this is fertile ground for as a genre, but maybe it's one that's only available, really, to people who have infinite resources like Valve do. Um, but, yeah, on just every level, I found Maquette really grating and frustrating and unsatisfying and incoherent. Um, and yeah, I really can't say bad enough things about, <laughs> about his story, about well, its story I, specifically. I was going to caveat this discussion by by declaring an interest in that I'm good friends with one of the people who make on it, but I don't think anybody's going to assume this is a biased podcast. <laughs> well, like, I, I kind of want to, like, I like romantic comedies. Um, and a lot of romantic comedies are about <laughs> coastal elites. Like there's hmm. there's lots of them which are about uh, you know Billy Crystal or Tom Hanks or you know people in big American cities with too much money um, having really spiteful fights with other people for no reason and then falling in love. Um, but they're romantic comedies they're funny <laughs> they're there's a charm to them that this just completely lacks in its writing these characters i did not they're voiced by um bryce dallas dallas howard and seth gable now bryce dallas howard i've seen in films she's great and her voice acting in this is good seth gable i've not heard of before but they're actually married in real life <laughs> wow <laughs> so extract to, to sort of delete the chemistry there <laughs> Must have taken some day. They give a good, like a good, believable performance, but I don't feel like they're given anything to say at any point, which is charming. Um, yeah, it, 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 it. I feel like these stories so easily go wrong, and as you know, I, I gave a bunch of American examples, but it's true of like Richard Curtis mm-hmm. uh, scripts as well. Like, you, you need an extremely charming. Hugh Grant or John Cusack or something like that at the center of it maybe to make it work otherwise uh, you just it's just you just kind of hate them <laughs> yeah other people's relationships are very very boring unless they're exploding <laughs> in a soap opera or you're watching something like Eternal Sojourner of the Spotless Mind 
which mixes mm. a kind of sort of reverse psychodrama that is still very funny and very moving uh, and also has lots of perspective tricks and in-camera trickery as well. Uh, not that this game should be that, but I, th- I think like films have done so much with that, uh, with the kind of r- the romance angle. Yeah, like Eternal Sunshine is like, it's both got Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, who are both extremely winning at the centre of it. And then yeah. it's self-aware, like it's self-loathing and it <laughs> points out its own tropes and uh, riffs on them and plays with them and then finds a way back towards something that's sentimental and hopeful at the end, but feels more authentic for the fact that it's it's often quite dark and miserable and depressive along the way. Mm. Um, whereas this is like, they meet in a coffee shop. Their meet cute is that she spills coffee um, next to him. They immediately start drawing in a sketchbook together and start dating. They pretty like it kind of covers a two year span. They buy a house in that time. Um, and he, the guy, at one point remarks that he looked at these salt and pepper shakers that are mismatched and uh, tells himself that it's good enough, it'll do, <laughs> that the salt and pepper shakers are mismatched rather than matching. Uh, <laughs> and and, and I, I suppose that's supposed to be allegorical for their relationship, but at the end of the game, he spends what he describes as too much money on matching salt and pepper shakers. <laughs> and that's as close to like an emotional journey <laughs> <laughs> as I can get from oh, the story. <laughs> What do, what do these characters do outside? I mean, do you ever find out what, who they are outside of the, their relationship? Um, not much. Like, um, Kenzie is... She ha- she has a job and she's studying, I think, in the evenings. So she goes to school in the evenings. And so, you know, they have a fight at one point about the fact that she's, she's tired and she's working very hard and doesn't feel like Michael is... Um, interested enough in that uh michael i can't remember i i think it maybe it came up at one point but it, he you don't get any sense of him having like you don't meet any other characters really like not from his life anyway like he goes to a house party he's the kind of perspective character so he's the person who's actually narrating it and the text that's coming up on, on the walls and stuff is from him um but like i couldn't name one of his his friends or anything like that the closest you get is he goes to a house party of some friends of kenzie's at one point um but no like it's 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 few and far between those actual cut scenes and what you get from them Hmm. that's a shame yeah i mean it's not helped the 2d animations that are playing out as you're getting those voiceovers are again I'm guessing like drawings from their sketchbook. Um, but those drawings in the sketchbook, a lot of the time don't relate to what's being discussed. You know, like there's a kind of a, a semi conceit where he's looking through the sketchbook, um, remembering the relationship. Uh, he describes looking at the screen, the sketchbook and reading it like a novel because the, the pictures in it trigger all these memories for him. But for me as a viewer, the drawings of like armchairs and cups and lots of houses and stuff like that don't seem to relate to the banalities of the voiceover and the arguments they're having or whatever else they're going on. Um, yeah. Or indeed the ability to place a block in a small place and have it appear in a slightly bigger <laughs> place. 
Yeah, or or pick up a pink orb and struggle to put it down again. Yeah, it's it's a shame it resorts to orbs. I feel like the the premise of it does have some legs, though. What you're saying about these games maybe not being as fertile ground as they first appear, I think that's that's probably that's probably true for some gimmicks. But I do think they're you know I, I it's definitely true of Superliminal actually. I think because then really when you when you work out what its trick is that that is the only trick it that it has <laughs> um i think if 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 you do this sort of thing you need to have something which is continuously mind blowing in some way yeah too or too often this maquette doesn't escalate its, its central puzzle concept it just comes up with new concepts that are worse so like uh, uh, towards the end of the game for example you find another orb that you can pick up and this orb when you look through it, um, you can see things that you can't see when you're not looking through it. So, like, it allows you to see yellow leaves on the ground and they kind of trace a path through the environment. And it allows you to see that certain giant rocks that are kind of hemming you in can actually be walked through. Um, but that has nothing to do with the, right. the, the kind of recursive scale at the center of the puzzle idea and it's not particularly interesting you're just following a wholly linear path except the path is can needlessly obscured in some way and in fact while doing that i failed to spot one of the fake rocks that i could actually walk through and went down a dead end route and then hopped up some rocks and ended up leaping out of the level in a way that I wasn't supposed to like I broke it essentially by getting into an area that I wasn't supposed to and not being able to get my way back in and I had to reload into the back of the beginning of the chapter again um yeah it's not mm. not great I, I should stop going on about it because it starts to feel cruel <laughs> at this point um but I'm sure it's it's it seems to have been successful for them so I don't feel too bad <laughs> <laughs> The shaders are nice, though. Really nice shaders. <laughs> it, it does. Like, like I say, there's a lot of talent on display. And like, it does do things like, for example, you walk into an, an area and all the buildings around you sort of grow into place. Um, and that's, that'll be, I assume, a shader effect causing that stuff to, to spread and to grow. And that looks really lovely. Um, and just like, like the technology of this central concept is pretty cool. Like being able to move a little block in a little world and see at the corner of your eye that the big version of it is moving simultaneously. Like it's not faked. These things are actually linked and moving around at the same time. And you, you drop the little block down and it makes a, a little small clink sound as it hits the ground. And then you get the huge thud of the giant version of it behind you hitting the ground. Like that's cool. There's, there's, there is something really great about that and its presentation and stuff. It just yeah, it doesn't coherently follow through on it. Hmm. Have you played Manifold Garden? No. No, I haven't, actually. Um, it's recursive in a different way, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the, the, the last one of these sort of um, uh, big gimmick puzzle games that I played, which I really thought did a, did a great job. I don't think it, it does that much to kind of evolve its central puzzle conceit because it is in this sort of uh, infinite world, infinitely repeating world, like a, um, a fractal pattern. Uh, and you can jump off a ledge, fall, and then you'll land on the same ledge again. Um, but just that and being in that 
in confounding space is it just lasts you the whole game it doesn't really need to hmm. to kind of squeeze that many tricks out of it because that single trick is superb as is like in in portal you know i mean although that that does uh you know, wring as many different ideas out of that conceit as it can. Like fundamentally, the idea of connecting two different parts of space with a portal—that's <laughs> that's really exciting. Yeah, that changes how you perceive reality. Whereas I worry, I worry there are a lot of games um, that do this. Some things are small, and now they're big. Um, trick. Uh, I can't remember the, what was the the game that Kim Swift worked on. I was trying to think short, of that one shortly after Portal. Mm. Um. And that that did the, that sort of its trick sort of topped out at like uh, this thing can be light or it can be made heavy and like there's there's just nothing sort of scintillating or confounding about that that's you know that's just adding another bag of flour to the scales <laughs> that's something you can experience in your kitchen whereas you know combining two parts of space is just sort of more elevated um, and I wonder if even though it has this sort of matroshka style structure to to maquette maybe maybe just what you're you end up doing with it placing something small that has a, a big effect elsewhere just f- ends up not being as profound as as it sort of like visually purports to be quantum conundrum was the oh, kim yeah, swift game yeah. yeah 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 i think you're probably right i mean i sort of Brew having to admit this, but probably The Witness is the game other than Portal, which I think does this the best. Um, I love I, The Witness. Yeah. No, no ruining required. <laughs> I, I really like it too. Uh, um, and it's a lot of its puzzles are 2D puzzles. Like they just flat on a screen. You could almost make The Witness as a, as a 2D game. Um, but then it does find really interesting and finding clever ways of then linking those little screens you're solving its maze puzzles on into the 3D world you're exploring at the same time. And, and you would definitely lose something if you didn't have, have both of them. But otherwise, I generally find that, that um, when, when I say 2D, I mean like, you know, top down, like the, um, Stephen Lavelle's stuff or that sort of stuff, Alan Hazelden's stuff. I find those kinds of puzzle games seem to be not better but more regularly wringing everything from their concepts and so i just wonder if the the resources were required to make a first person game and a first person world which is interesting to explore and make a good puzzle game out of it and maybe layer a story in there is too much for some of these smaller teams i'm trying to think of a it's a first person 3d game which did have like quite a a deep story about AI, um, but it was actually about pointing lasers in lots of places. Uh, oh yeah, the Talos Principle. That's it. Mm. That was pretty good. I thought. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, uh, great story as well. Yeah, exactly. I think that wove the story in very, very nicely. Admittedly, by just sort of you clicked on terminals and read loads of text, but I was fine with that. To be honest, I didn't need allegory. <laughs> just, just uh, chat logs are fine by me <laughs> when it comes to that. It was from the developers of Serious Sam, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah, they, of course they they demonstrated that they had they had that clever, meaningful puzzle game within them by sending headless men with bombs for hands after you back in back in the nineties. Good stuff. <laughs> so meaningful. Tom, what have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing. Um, so this is the latest in my series of uh, bath games. Hashtag bath games. 
Hashtag don't play games in the bath. Um, <laughs> uh, the latest one is Dragon Quest Eleven. How long are you spending in the bath each time? Because Dragon yeah. Quest Eleven is He's like never what, left 90, the bath. I, I'm, I'm long? in the bath right now. <laughs> Microphone dangerously close to the foam. Um, yeah, it's, it, Dragon Quest Eleven is, is obviously going. To, I can tell already it's going to be an extraordinarily long game. Um, it's also just a kind of it's the most sort of tired JRPG format you could imagine rendered in 3d uh to the extent that i've uh, it's called <laughs> i love the subtitle echoes of an elusive age <laughs> which kind of is kind of it's not that elusive the age of old jrpgs because <laughs> they haven't really changed very much for a long time especially this series in particular and uh, there are sections in this game where you could choose to play the game in, th- in 2d instead of 3d uh which it just sort of i don't know why that undermines the game in some ways, it's just like, well, of course, you could ultimately render all games down to a 2D plane, probably. Like, even like Half Life, you could turn that into a 2D shooter. But, like, if you can do that and not lose anything, then what's the point in all of the graphics? <laughs> and what's the point in uh, Dragon Ball Z artist Akira Toriyama doing the character art for you and that kind of stuff? When, if what people really want is the old thing that is very much the same, um, and uh, like it comes down to like goes right down to enemies. So you fight lots of slimes initially. There are big smiley faces on them, um, and then you fight she slimes, which are just red versions of the same thing. And it's like that's like where does gender come into the slime threat <laughs> kind of matrix? Like what what is that? You know what's what's that threat level? Uh, and it's just it's in there because it used to be in there and that like fans of the series would just expect it to be there. And the bits where you actually go into 2D and there you can meet these little ghosts, which are adorable, uh, and they take you into the, the 2D sort of, I think it's called like the TikTok realm, and it's all 2D, and suddenly, instead of bumping into enemies in a 3D world, it's all random battles. So you're just wandering around, take two steps, random battle, classic old-school JRPG, and it just sort of tells you why that sucks now. <laughs> you don't, like... It's supposed to be like a really cute kind of throwback to the early days of the series, but when you actually play it, you just realise that yeah, no, this design is bad. It's, there's a reason why like games have moved <laughs> away from this ever since. But you're, but, but yet still, you are forcing me to play through this bit <laughs> to get to the next bit of the game. Um, and there's absolutely no way in hell I'm playing the whole game in 2D if that's what it's going to be like. So uh, it's a weird game because it's, it's supposed to be the most accessible in the series. I think it is in terms of like the way it onboards you with its combat system. Uh, it's very traditional turn-based combat system uh and it's probably its greatest concession to modernity is that you can move your characters around the battlefield before you select them like their their move in their turn there's absolutely no difference to how combat works uh there's nothing to like positioning your characters means nothing in that combat system it's just a thing that you can do because that's sort of a modern thing perhaps that you might be able to do in other games uh, but no, like so, I've actually like gone into the options and turned that off, so everyone stands in straight lines as it should be. <laughs> and yeah, it just feels like the game is constantly sucked into this sort of nostalgic black hole. And maybe that's right for that series. It is on number eleven, so it's obviously quite successful. <laughs> and there's obviously a reason why it's quite successful. Um, but I often wonder, like, to what extent games or a series get pulled down by their genre. Um, and it sort of made me think of Resident Evil as a series which has gone on such a strange journey from its kind of wonky fixed camera angle, uh, 2D backgrounds, 3D uh, characters, 
and then with Resi 4 it turned into a kind of over-the-shoulder shooter and then it, like with 7 it became a first-person horror survival shooter and who knows what 8 will be like and I don't know it was like that game has had to constantly reinvent itself and as soon as it got stale it did sort of it kept some of the tropes um, but actually it did sort of change genres almost um, the Final Fantasy series does well at this as well like the they come up with a new combat system, a new combat system for every single one of those games, and some of them hark back to the old job system, which is what Dragon Quest does, and some of them are just like the whole paradigm system in Final Fantasy Thirteen, which I think is actually quite a bad game. <laughs> it's an extremely, extremely corridor game where you just go down corridors and uh, you have to endure irritating characters and then have turn-based battles. But the paradigm system is quite interesting because it changes the entire kind of class setup of your uh, of your team on the fly so if you're so you could pressure and then knock an enemy down and then change mode or back off when the enemy's powering up uh, and it looks spectacular and that's just a whole new system they came up with for that game specifically and then they made mmos that are really good uh just thought out of the blue 11 that people still play 14 uh perfectly solid good mmo games um and then 15 was its own thing as well not a great thing <laughs> But at least, at least it was different. At least it's like it's sort of evolving and trying to move on. And even though, yeah, sure, there's chocobos and sure, there's normally like a princess and you see the old summons, but at least the kind of the design is shifting a bit. And I just kind of, it made me think of like, I think, I wonder if you guys feel nostalgic about particular games where whether you think, whether you would kind of balk if they completely changed a series that you loved. Like uh, if Half-Life became an RTS for a minute, or a also, VR game, or a VR game. Good, yeah, good shout. But which obviously, I think I've not played it, but it sounds great. Uh, that seems like a really successful evolution of that of that world and that series. Uh, but I wondered if there are any kind of like protected properties that you you'd not like to see evolved. Mm, not really for me. Like, I think there are. Like you could change genre of some games, and I would just not no longer have interest in playing it anymore. But I wouldn't be cross about the fact that it, it happened. I mean, with Half Life, the idea that there was another Half Life game at all um, was remarkable. So the fact that it switched to VR didn't bother me, and the change exposed things about that Half Life experience in new ways that 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 just did just make it feel fresh. But with Dragon Quest, like the thing I've, I've I played like an era of Dragon Quest Eleven, and I haven't played any of the previous games. But what I've read about it is, well, first of all, that it's flipping massive in Japan, like far bigger than Final Fantasy was, and the old Dragon Quest games I think were famous for like shutting down Japan's economy because on the day of release, people would queue up in order to to buy. Dragon Quest for errors and errors, like it was, it was a proper phenomenon beyond the scale that we can't tend to think possible for video games a lot of the time back in the nineties. But then the other thing people say about it is that they're like, they're like bedtime stories. Like the the, the appeal of them is that they are these very comforting tales um, of traditional heroic daring do and likable characters forming a party and going out and. And saving the world so i can like understand when you've got like a long-running series you know it's going to be semi-regularly released that you don't necessarily want it to stop being that thing and just become dragon quest builders which is the spin-off series that they do which is a right. different genre of game yeah that's a good point actually um 
yeah, it's really true from what I played so far that it is, you know, kings and castles and you know errant sons and knights gone wrong and that kind of stuff. And it's actually like it is. A bit, I think Alex uh, described it when he was talking about it on a previous podcast. It is like a series of kind of short stories almost. There is a kind of an overarching quest or something called the Luminary that is going to defeat the darkness at some point. But uh, as you travel through the world, each sort of little city has its own story, sub story, um, and it's all pretty standard sort of like heroes stuff um and maybe that is just like maybe it's right that it should just be that storybook thing and uh maybe that's a you know <laughs> I, I think for me that the series i would think of is like the room weirdly so i don't want the room to ever change <laughs> this is the series of 3d kind of like puzzle box games mm. uh, and i'll play it in vr but it's basically the same in vr just with extra kind of tactile it does add an extra element to it but if the room became a, a first person, it is first person. But you know, like a first person game where you wander around, uh, and it's also yeah. a relationship drama <laughs> where <laughs> big things can become small and vice versa. Then I'd be like, no, I'm out. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's it's very good at what it does specifically. Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good comparison because the last one actually has a doll's house in it. So you are, and the doll's house is of the house that you're in. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's a classic horror trope, that one. It's great. Oh, no, well, I meant it's like maquette in that there's a, a miniature version of the, the environment that you're currently contained in that you can affect in interesting ways. Yeah, scary, though, isn't it? That's better. Yeah. It's better than being asked to care about someone's romance. <laughs> <laughs> Something yeah. vaguely spooky happening. That's good. Give me some oily black tendrils. Yeah. Uh, the, the provenance and origin story of which I've completely forgotten across the course of four room games, but oh, definitely <laughs> scary. They are scary. There's also, you know, there are moments in the room where you sort of have these special lenses that you can equip that give you an alternative view of certain photographs. And that, that stuff could get pretty spooky at times. I'd say, like, that that, that would give my, uh, I'd say the creeps for sure. Like, she'd hate it. It's like, oh, no, there's someone standing behind that person. What could it possibly mean? Oh, it means you have to go over there and uh, put a key in something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's still good, though. Like, I think for me, that's a good narrative layer. Uh, a good uh, example of like a narrative player just sort of gently creating a mood around what you're doing uh, that doesn't ask it's, you. Yes, it, it never goes full horror though. I think I really appreciate it from uh, that it, it knows exactly the 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 sort of the level of um, spook <laughs> to deliver. It's it, they're always quite soothing places to be ultimately. Yeah, even true. though they there are it does have this sort of uh, haunted house aesthetic like. Really, it's 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 quite a, a therapeutic exercise examining these boxes and pulling them apart, and then finding the keys and then the miniature things within those things that then unlock themselves. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing scary about it mechanically. No, no, that's definitely true. Uh, and I I would instantly be put off if there was. Yes, that, yeah, yeah. If there was a monster out to sort of slam a door on or something, that would ruin it. I think they they often understand that because there's never an explicit. Mm. In fact, they I don't think the that I can't think of a time limit to puzzle in the whole thing, to be honest. No. Um, which I think they must have some, like, I don't know if they're like, explicitly written down design rules as to what makes a good room game or things that their players will hate. But they obviously just understand it instinctively, at least. Uh, and for that reason, I'll play every single one of them um, mm. as, as long as they never change. <laughs> <laughs> which makes me a hypocrite, really, because um, I want Drag Dragon Quest to change. I want to sort of, I, re I really want to like it. I really want to be part of the club. Um, and perhaps that club's not for me. But what what is the like to me 
the definitive things about the Dragon Quest games are these traditional heroic stories and it's a very traditional JRPG. If you remove either one of those things, it sort of feels like it ceases ceases to be Dragon Quest and may as well mm. just be any other JRPG at that point. If like, do you think you could change or advance its traditional JRPG mechanics and still have it feel like Dragon Quest? And if so, what are the what are the the design rules or the defining character characteristics you would have written down on that bit of paper to yeah. pass it off to your new designers? Yeah, that's it's a very really good point. I, you're right that it is. If that is its entire identity is that it is this one uh, skeletal structure repeated over and over again, and you sort of dress dress it up with different characters each time. Um, then, of course, yeah, the financial success of that series probably depends enormously on that. I would uh, speed up almost every aspect of it <laughs> in, in terms of how fast it gets going, how fast you travel between places, uh, how fast the combat is <laughs> in terms of just selecting things, how fast you unlock skills. I mean, literally every aspect of it I would speed up. Uh, but that's just that's just me. Like, uh, maybe like people who love Dragon Quest. Uh, Dragon Quest is like a slow burn experience that gradually sort of unfolds as you meet new party members. Um, and I just like a little bit more intrigue in the combat system. And maybe that will show itself after twenty hours. <laughs> I have played ten, <laughs> and so far it's just press attack on slimes <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, and the skill trees are like, yeah, there are skill trees and things, but it takes a long time. Um, the, there is a recent trend for like JRPGs adding essentially fast forward buttons. Because like the Final Fantasy twelve re-release from a couple of years ago, yep. let you literally fast forward through battles and through, like play the entire game at like three times speed or something like that. I think there's been a couple of other JRPGs on Switch that have similarly had something like that. They're, they're sort of starting to realize at least that, you know, grind and turn-based battles and that sort of stuff are core maybe to the genre, but you get a bigger audience if you make your game not take so flipping long to advance through. Yeah, I mean, I could probably get halfway through a side quest in one bath <laughs> in Dragon Quest Eleven. <laughs> uh, this is now the meter by which I measure games, and that's uh, it's, I don't have, well, I do have enough time at the moment, but normally, <laughs> normally I wouldn't have enough time to actually pursue that and actually finish the game. I don't think I'm ever going to finish it you sort of see it stretching endlessly out in front of you. Um, and I just sort of, uh, there's something slightly futile about, even though I enjoy it moment to moment sometimes, that knowledge that I'm never going to have enough time to really do this. There are so many other games that are quicker. And um, I've been playing like um, Bravely Default 2, which is flawed in loads of ways. But that too has a, a sort of an auto-attack combat function and it expects you to grind loads all the time um, to the extent that, in dungeons uh, it's not random encounters thank goodness but uh, there are like monsters wandering around and you can bump into them to initiate combat and sometimes they'll chase you um but if you're above the level for the area they'll actually run away from you so you kind of want to grind until you get to the stage where most of them are running away from you and then you can proceed with the story and if there's an auto attack mode basically where you could just activate it at the start of combat and everyone will just attack normally and wipe out the wipe out the um, the enemies with ease and in that case why have that combat at all? <laughs> Why not when I bump into that enemy, do I not just delete it without having to go through <laughs> the rigmarole of loading into a combat scene, seeing it play out at fast speed, um, and then coming out of it again with experience? 
uh, kind of notifications and that kind of stuff. And it kind of does expose how, how much of a waste of time that is. <laughs> As a, uh, I, I really like the idea of just, if you're going to do this, if you're already overpowered for an enemy, give me the total war auto-resolve <laughs> where I could I just bump into mm. them and just delete them and get the stuff. And you're going to have to put limits on that because it makes it very trivial just to go around in circles and get overpowered very quickly. But I just still prefer it's just wasting my time. I've seen all the animations. I've seen all the animations they do, and it looks very nice. But I don't need to see them a hundred times in this dungeon, and they never change. So yeah, I know there's a kind of version. I'd love to see a kind of the most fast-forwarded version of JRPG, where it skips through as so much bullshit just as fast as possible. And I really wonder what that would look like. I wonder how satisfying it would be. I don't think it would work at all, but it would just be funny. I think it'd be funny, at least. <laughs> There's a, it got some attention over the past week, but the original creator of Final Fantasy released a trailer for his new JRPG, and it's it's a mobile-focused thing, but it has a feature where as you're touring around an area, rather than having to continually enter into turn-based battles with all the enemies you can see, you can send them off into like a pocket dimension, <laughs> Uh, which can store up to like 35 enemies or something. And then you can deal with them all at once. So what you can do is you can explore the entire area, putting everyone in your pocket, um, talk to all the characters, collect all the items, reveal everything on the map, yada, yada, yada. And then when you're done, go, okay, I'm going to do the combat now. And then just chain 35 fights. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that, you know, all right, I'm ready. Rather than being constantly interrupted. I quite like that. I like that idea. I like the the kind of the, the brinksmanship there as well. It's like, could I take ten in a row, or could I take could I take twenty in a row? Is my party good enough for that? Uh, that's that's actually really interesting. I'll take that. That's really interesting, actually. Uh, yeah. Are you enjoying briefly default to at all, or is it just like a boring thing that you wish you could fast forward through? Um, it's it's it look. I really like the um. I really like the art actually, and I like the fact that you when you go into a town. There's a button you can press that zooms out and shows you the whole town and everywhere you can go in it, and it's all like a big one-screen beautiful art. Um, so far, I've not played a huge amount of it compared to Dragon Quest. The fact that I favoured Dragon Quest, even though I apparently hate it, <laughs> uh, I don't really hate it, but uh, you know, I've I get frustrated with it. It's just that there's not enough. Of, there aren't enough like character hooks in Bravely Default. Uh, there's something about Dragon Quest that is just um, so earnest that. Uh, the characters are so sort of nice to each other. It's a mm. it's a pleasant place to be. Even the, and the fact you're fight, fighting slimes with giant big smiley faces on them, it's just it is. If you just want to sit back and tick through some things as to a podcast, have you know, whatever something on the telly in the background, it's lovely. Whereas Red Default Two lacks that charm, and charm is such a weird word because it's kind of it's so like ethereal. Really, like what is what's charming to one person isn't to another but i think there is a sort of mass appeal to dragon quest's world that does make it easier to dip into when i'm loading up my library and i'm looking at stuff i want to sort of click on dragon quest is always kind of there even if i don't when i'm playing it i'm often bored <laughs> <laughs> which is it's not a great relationship to have with the game but that's that's how i feel about it this is the relationship that i want though so badly <laughs> like i continually try jrpgs and bounce off them i play about three hours of them and then don't go back but i badly want 
because I look at the screenshots and I look at the blue sky and the sunshine and the happy smiley anime faces and the the windmills and the grass and the pitter patter rain and the Studio Ghibli music and mm. I'm like yeah I, I want this and the fact that the combat is monotonous I'm like yeah I want a game I can play while watching Castle on the other monitor essentially and so it has to be like somewhat unengaging like it can't demand too much of my attention or focus um but then whenever i i sit down to actually play one of these jrpgs it's like up starting a new fantasy novel and the the first sentence is just filled with place names i don't know and words i don't recognize and it was the year 77 of the something age. And I don't fucking care that it's the elusive age. Who's the, what's the elusive age? Who's this fucking <laughs> prick? Why do I have to climb up the top of this shitty mountain to pick the thing, the myth, myth of whatever, or fuck off. Oh, and it's like constantly interrupting me to d- explain systems to do with, I don't know, fucking no runes, probably socketing systems <laughs> and crafting this. And I'm like, Oh fuck. Why is this? I, I just want to get to that point where I've been playing it for nine hours i understand all the systems and i can enter into the fugue state of just enjoying the the smiley faces and the grass and the blue sky but i never can puncture through all of the systems and the craft and the lore that i need to in order to get to that point Hmm. maybe this is the game for you um (laughs) but the first thing you do is uh leave your village and then go up a tour uh a TOR and um, oh yeah, the localization in this game is wild. <laughs> it's uh, so provincial, so provincially British that I saw that it's almost off-putting. <laughs> 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 uh, yes, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but that's the only bit of the game I played. I got to the top of that hell. It took about an hour. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. There was a, a glowing light maybe that I absorbed into myself. Maybe there was a crystal. I don't fully remember. It's been a couple of years now. Yeah, it's about, um, about right. Yeah, and I never went back. I never went back to it. Um, Fucking crystals. Yeah. So I, like my fiance is from the Southwest and uh, <laughs> the first companion you, you go up that the tour with is so aggressively Southwest. I think she'd be a bit offended by it, even though I'm sure they got someone who actually is from there to actually voice it. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. Uh, I think that this also goes from oh, what was the um, the Ghibli design? Nino Kuni. Yeah, Nino Kuni, mm. uh, which is great because um, he had a fantastic Welsh companion. Yeah, uh, who is awesome, and so I think maybe that's a new trend in JRPG uh, localization to the UK. I did. I did better with Nino Kuni. I got, I played that for like maybe I did get to the ten hour mark of that um, of the first game. And I really disliked the combat in it. Mm. I mean, I think it's broadly disliked. But also all the combat is just against cute little vegetable creatures. And I didn't want to keep beating up cute little vegetable creatures in the sewers beneath. I felt like, I felt like I'd been transported away into the, the world of Howl's Moving Castle or something like that. Right, and I right, just right. spent the whole entire time beating up turnip head and trying to fucking douse the, <laughs> the, the lovable 
the little fireplace. Flame. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm just like this brutal murderer child going through this world, kicking the crap out of everyone with my little enslaved army in my pocket that I whisk out and make battle for me. I'm like, what the? This is not the experience I want. I don't think. I think me, Zaki, would say that this was a crime against humanity. <laughs> <laughs> we should take out that video. That video uh, where. Um, Artists come to Mizaki with a kind of procedurally generated animation, computer animation system. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he sits there quietly while they explain it to him about how he can create, you know, unusual new shapes, forms of movement, and he just sort of existentially destroys them. <laughs> <laughs> really unfairly, to be honest, because like, they're trying their hardest, but it's an amazing thing to watch. He'll politely nod as he <laughs> says there are abominations against <laughs> nature and God. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Let's go, Teddy. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we've just ragged on loads of games so far this evening. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a game that I like that is good. And the game I'm going to mention is Blaz Blue. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's happening. It's the latest Arc Systems game that Tom has been playing and barely understands, but will recommend anyway if you like this sort of thing to beat him up. Um, and the one I'd recommend. So, this is kind of like a, a bridge between. So, the one you should start with if you want to get into these types of game. Uh, you should start with Dragon Ball Fighters, uh, and that's Dragon Ball Fighters Z, the big Z, at the end. Um, that is just uh, you get the most sort of spectacle for your button presses with that one. Uh, it's still a perfectly good fighting game, uh, really spectacular stuff. But next, next you should you should use Blaz Blue as uh, a bridge to get to Guilty Gear, and and that this is this is how it works. And the the Blaz Blue game you want to get on Steam. It's currently 80% off. It's about six quid. Um, I'm just going to Google it. Blaz Blue Steam. And they all have ridiculous names. Yeah, Central Fiction. <laughs> all one word. Uh, C-E-N-T-A-R-L Fiction. All one word. Um, and that is basically just uh, an accumulation of all of the characters and DLC and stuff from previous Blaz Blues. It's uh, the entry port to your series. And it's got about 36 fighters and all of the crazy campaigns and arcade mode um some of the best tutorials in fighting games and extensive kind of like individual challenges for each of the 36 fighters it's a, it's an insane package for like six quid if you like fighting games um so i so now i'll, I'll just uh that, that's that's my pitch i'll get off the soapbox and um turn to marsh and say what was that? why why that cry of despair marsh when i want to mention blast blue well, there's, I mean, there's always something slightly infuriating about the word salad of, yes. of uh, particularly uh, JRPG titles uh, coming to the Western market. But Blaz Blue particularly enrages <laughs> me. It's such a nonsense fucking word. I remember the first time I heard it, it actually prompted us, me and Owen Hill, uh, to try and convince one of our colleagues that the word value is pronounced Val Blue. Um, <laughs> We just kept on saying, that's really good Val Blue around him. And he, he didn't understand what was going on, but he was slightly angry about it. <laughs> so that's, uh, look out. If you don't like that, if you don't like its own name, uh, do not go anywhere near this game. Because <laughs> every fight starts with a huge graphic that says, the wheels of fate are turning. Uh, and it's never, why? Who knows? And uh, it's sort of like, you know how, like, in fighting games, normally it just goes three, two, one, fight. I was trying to figure out, like, I can't remember what it, I can't remember what it even says. It's almost like three, two, one, resign, and then you fight. 
<laughs> what are you saying? What are you talking about? Amazing 2D animation, though, uh, and generally good fighter. And even though, like, you, you, it's surprisingly accessible, even though the sort of upper tier of its systems are extremely hard to pass. Um, and that's why it was an eSport for a while. I think it might have been part, part of Evo for a while, actually. Um, Arc Systems games almost have, almost always has at least one uh, entry in the Evo tournament. Do you, do, are you playing Blaz Blue like online against other people, or are you just hell no? The computer? <laughs> <laughs> Man, the computer's good. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, if I was going to do that, I would pick. I would. I, I've gone online with Tekken. Tekken is basically my level when it goes to going online with fighting games. Okay. So Tekken Five. Um, like actually, I, you know, I've, I've learned a couple of characters well enough to get by fairly well. That's never going to happen for this game. My thumbs are too old. <laughs> they creak and they don't go fast enough to do the things needed, uh, or to recognise what's happening in a given moment where I can, de- you know, deploy my ultimate counter uh, in order to stop a fatal combo and then repost with my ultimate attack uh i mean that stuff's great in single player because you do get really tense fights that go right down to the wire and it looks absolutely spectacular like amazing stuff uh but if i was going to go online i'd just get absolutely rinsed there's people just have more time on their hands and they're faster than me at thinking (laughs) so this is is, this is a good uh, single player option um as is uh, all of arc system works games are actually that i've played because they often have like really extensive story modes and arcade modes and tutorials and really good AI. Mm. Uh, so the, like it's a game that you could play, a fighting game you could play by yourself quite happily. I really love the look of their games. And I quite like watching or learning about fighting games, like the, the strategies and the tactics involved and that sort of stuff. Um, but when I play them myself, I find that I enjoy them when I'm winning. Mm. And then when I lose, I'm like, uh, I don't want to have to now get better at this. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to have to do the work required of me to learn how to appropriately use the skills that the game wants me to use. Um, which is fine. They're just. They're just not for me. Um, I. I. I also shat, shat all over maquette. So I'm not going to say positive things about a video game though. But I recommend two things based on stuff you've been talking about, Tom. Mm. One, um, the uh, Quentin Smith. Um, from Shut Up and Sit Down, previously mm-hmm. of RPS, did a good podcast series called The Contender. I think it only ran for like six <coughs> episodes or something like that, but it was basically Quentin trying to get good at Street Fighter. I think maybe Street Fighter Five might have been Street Fighter Four. I can't remember how long ago it was, but he but he talks to a bunch of people that are expert at fighting games, and episode by episode they break down um, what what are good players of fighting games actually doing. What where are the the kind of skill metrics of a fighting game? Because it's not always obvious when you're watching two professional people play these games what the heck is going on and what they're doing and what the difference is between them and that sort of stuff. So that's a good podcast. The other thing is um, Tim Rogers, when he was still at Kotaku, did a really good review of Dragon Quest XI um, when it came out originally in English. Um, Tim Rogers is fluent in Japanese, and so he'd already played the game in Japanese before he played it in English. I think he played it three game, three times and all. And so he does this insanely comprehensive 60 to 90 minute long review of Dragon Quest XI, um, which is a really good case, I think, for 
why the series is the way it is, why it's been so popular, what's good about it, and why he really likes Dragon Quest XI. That's awesome. I'm going to definitely read that because it might give me the appreciation of it I need to, the, the context almost, that might actually kind of keep me, like, almost teach me what to look for and what to appreciate about the game that perhaps I've missed just by playing through it for a bit. Yeah, it made me appreciate the game, but then I played it for an hour and never went <laughs> it. So it'll make, you, it'll make you appreciate why other people like it maybe more than make you like it more. But yeah, it's it's worth watching. Ah, good recommendations there. Uh, yes. Another Quentin Smith news. He's uh, he's started up a, a YouTube explainer series on uh, Blazeball. Another stupid word, but actually mirrored <laughs> in the stupidity, intentional stupidity of the game. Oh yeah. But he uh, put out a, a video the other day where he's um, explaining what happened in the first eleven seasons. I think they're seasons of Blazeball and what's awaiting us in the twelfth. And it's brilliant. Even though I haven't played any Blazeball, um, it's a really really entertaining explainer yeah I've, i don't know anything about baseball apart from it's some sort of parody of baseball but in sort of text rpg form perhaps uh but yeah i've had many many funny sentences coming out of that game sorry it's an online browser baseball simulation horror game <laughs> <laughs> i'm sold sold that's fantastic should we do some questions from questions yes okay yes tom writes dear cnc just wondering if any of you have tried out the Season Pass-style DLC that Civilization VI has been putting out over the last year. Have you? No. No. Well, uh, <laughs> something new releases every month, and while all of these include a new Civ of some kind, and maybe usually uh, new districts, buildings, or wonders, most also include a whole new game mode of the kind which normally would be packaged all together as an expansion. Good examples are a total rework of barbarian tribes, which change the interaction and let them evolve into city-states. The ability to build industries and corporations around luxury resources, if you get copies and secret societies, organizations with a very non-civ theme, like vampires, old gods and Illuminati. The last of these also give you diplomacy bonuses, penalties to other civs depending on their society, which mixes things up there. All genuinely quite game-changing, and the best part is that every other one of these is completely free. Not a model I've seen before in a 4X like this, um, though aware Paradox Grand Strategy games do this, and for me it's worked really well. It feels to me a bit like a fun testing ground for a future civ game. Thanks for the pods, Tom. Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting because... I haven't I haven't played Civ Six because I feel like I've had my fill of Civilization's quite traditional take on the four X, um, which reminds me of what Tom S was saying earlier about Dragon Quest Eleven. Like I like the idea that they're using Civ Six as a quite which is a quite traditional game, and then doing these DLCs and patches and stuff like that to do interesting things with that formula on top. Maybe that's the solution for Dragon Quest Twelve, that they release the traditional JRPG as the base that satisfies everyone, and then do weird DLC things with that template on top. I like the idea of this because it's sort of um, I think like actually sort of signing up for a subscription service encourages developers to set out a roadmap for players, so that you kind of you might not know all of the DLC packs that are coming, but they sort of have to guarantee a certain amount of stuff. 
that they have to fulfill in order to meet your subscription expectations. And that's the thing with um, Paradox's model is proving really successful. And uh, it's also a model that's worked brilliantly for The Sims, for example, where EA just constantly come out with Sims 4 expansion packs. And they're often very good, but you don't know whether you're going to get a Hogwarts one or a Pets one. And those might appeal to very different people differently. Whereas with a subscription service, I think there's kind of an interesting onus to perhaps make it to make each update have more mass appeal than perhaps the expansion model does where you can pick and choose. Maybe actually that's the worst thing I actually say out loud. <laughs> um, but it also, it does at least give you a sense, a guarantee that this game is going to be supported for a certain amount of time. I think increasingly when, you know, living games are increasingly kind of the model that lots of publishers go for, that is actually quite reassuring. Um, and that's something that if it was announced before a game, was released and said, okay, we're going to have a subscription service for this. It's going to last for two years. And then I'd feel like I was buying into something. And the old Battlefield games did this, not old, um, the recent Battlefield, from Battlefield 3 onwards, you'd get a kind of Battlefield pass and that would last for two years. And you know that you get all the new new maps, you get all the new modes. And that was, uh, I think that was actually quite a good value proposition for for, for players, um, even though they caused some controversy at the time. I don't know what you guys think. I, I agree with you. Like I like the idea of buying into this thing and having this guarantee of content. I can see where people... I mean, all of this stuff's slightly strange for me because I do get a lot of games free through work. And I can understand if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to spend $60 on this game, that uh, you would feel differently maybe about being advertised a season pass where you can pay a further... <laughs> $80 or whatever to then get all the post-release stuff um, for two years afterwards. It's a lot, it's a lot of being marketed at, mm -hmm. I think, is the thing that a lot of the time people are responding to when they say they don't like this stuff. Yeah, I think it's just a lot easier for you to understand the value proposition of something that is finite and released, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I think the Sims model is nice because each... Uh, this is something that the Sims is a single-player game can do this because it can... You can take or leave each segments of the game but with a multiplayer map or something like that you can't but this is like where perhaps civ perhaps paradox's model is better for 4x because it's a purely single player game for the most part um you can actually like if you leave out one particular expansion the rest of your game is not impacted in any way whereas if you miss a map pack for a multiplayer game it could draw audiences away from existing maps. It can change the kind of makeup of the modes that are being played. And that could significantly change your experience with something like Battlefield. Um, so maybe Paradox's thing is better. Um, but it sounds like Tom has had a good experience with it so far. So Yeah. It's, it's, the responses you see to these things are completely inconsistent, though, because I played The Sims a bit, and they do expansion packs, game packs and stuff packs mm. which are all different types of content different sizes of or amounts of content um but then they just started doing what they're calling kits which are smaller chunks of it of downloadable content that you can buy and so like they they cost five dollars i think the others are like 10 15 and 20 dollars or something like that yeah these kits are just five dollars and if you look at like comments under the YouTube video, the trailer that announced this, the YouTube comments are just filthy with rage at being nickeled and dying more by EA. Uh, but then if you go read the 
the Twitch chat um, for the stream they did announcing this is just filled with people really excited mm. to buy kitchen cabinets for five dollars for their game. Um, and so I, 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 I do think when you know, obviously. The value of a dollar is relatively subjective based on your economic situation anyway but uh when it when it comes to video games it changes so much based on what your relationship is to that game and i think it's very hard to get a sense of what is actually controversial within the community versus controversial within some broader pool which just simply isn't the audience for the thing yeah that's, that's so true of the a given that like the EA hate train is is a thing. Like lots of people dislike EA for lots of different reasons, um, varying degrees of validity. But if you if you just play The Sims and you love The Sims, and for you like you just love dec- decorating your houses and the idea of having a new style of cupboard is a way a new way to, a new way to build a new house. That's then cool, right? Like you don't have to buy yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I. I, I uh, the way I play The Sims is I don't play The Sims, like the game's on pause almost the entire time. I just like building the homes. And so uh, on PC, you can already get lots of custom content created by the community. And so there's already, like, I've already spent time downloading kitchen cabinets that people have made <laughs> so I can make the kitchen that's in my head. Uh, and so I was paying $5 to to buy something like that um, yeah i'm fine with that that's how i want to play that game have you have you guys seen any of the kind of fifa controversies over the last few weeks i was i was about to talk about people actually I, i've only sort of heard it secondhand so if you could give like an overview of it like what, what, what's what's everyone so cross about well there's been two things so like um, fifa ultimate team oh uh, which makes I think literally a billion dollars every year. I don't. I think I might. I think it might be more than that. It's not an exaggeration. It's a huge money maker. But what it is is you're building teams for an online mode by buying packs of cards. The cards represent um, players or single use reusable items. Uh, but it's a it's a, it's loot boxes. It's a lottery. You don't know what what players you're going to get when you when you buy a pack. Mm. Uh, and so this makes huge amounts of money. But also FIFA as a set of systems when you're playing matches, it's it's trying to simulate fallible human beings. And sometimes even the best players in the world, when they kick a ball, kick it in the wrong direction or miss or get injured and that sort of stuff. And so the kind of combinations of these things of like uh, arguably exploitative a uh, gambling economy mixed with an opaque uh, physics system and set of AI um, mean that the player base is always suspicious of it. Mm. And there's been accusations for years that EA employ dynamic difficulty and uh, things like that in order to basically fuck you over in the game in order to incentivize you to spend more money through Ultimate Team. Uh, and part, in part, 
the suspicions of this are because EA have patented a system to do this. <laughs> uh, so that rather uh, caused a lot of people in the community concern. There's been rumors of this for years and years. And you can find, if you go to YouTube and search for this stuff, you can find these conspiracy theory videos of like, look, this is Lionel Messi miss kicking a ball in a single match. And this is hard proof that EA are employing these systems to bilk us out of our money. And eventually this led to, a couple of months ago, some players of the game filing a class action lawsuit against EA, Mm -hmm. which ended two weeks ago with the suit being dropped when EA made their engineers available to the people who'd brought the, the suit forward and gave them access to some of the technical specs for how their system works. And it seems like the people who brought the class action suit looked at it and went, oh, oh, oh okay, you're not doing the thing that we thought you were. Actually, it's all above board and yeah. the systems oh, are working properly. And dice rolls. Mm, yeah. um, and so that's that's one thing that's happened. The other thing that's just happened in the last couple of days is allegedly um, an EA developer has been selling ultra-rare cards from the game for <laughs> real money, um, including one card which sells for $2,500. Uh, and so, like these are these are cards which are incredibly rare, incredibly difficult to get. Um, but the allegation is that there is a developer EA that's exploiting his access to the game essentially uh, to sell these. Uh, and it's just it, it, it comes to mind because it's just it's another example of a value proposition of these things getting twisted and creating strange economies. I'm amazed that. This hasn't happened in previous iterations of uh, <laughs> the Ultimate Team, which has been going for years now, and it's just been wildly successful every year. Um, and yeah, I'm surprised there hasn't been some sort of like gamesmanship internally. Um, obviously, nothing that EA would ever condone, but you know, outside of the boundaries of the company, trying to make money off this stuff. Well, there was that case of. Um... I mean, like I said, these are allegations. So, like, there's always been a kind of grey and black markets around FIFA of, of people selling in-game items and stuff like this. And this might just be someone lying and saying that they're, you know, that their uncle works at EA and that's how they're getting access to the cards or whatever. So it could be complete bull. But there was that case years back of an EVE Online uh, developer who was... I can't remember exactly what he was doing, but he was doing something like rigging a system so that blueprints for spaceships went to the corp that he was a member <laughs> of, uh, basically you know, favoring his own squad and teammates and stuff like that within the game by exploiting the, his developer access. And like, you know, that was a big controversy at the time and CCP had to establish a bunch of rules and reprimand that person it seems like it's quite in keeping with i was about to say that <laughs> i was about to say that the kind of uh, the ultra libertarian fantasy of eve online suggests that oh these are just forces that exist <laughs> in the universe so you have to deal with them and overcome them as you an individual see fit if you don't like it why don't you join infiltrate <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah that, that's really good i was thinking about fifa with regards to the sims just now and um so if they uh, I like FIFA. It's, it's it's a fun sort of kickabout game that I enjoy every now and then. It's also just uh, it's perfectly captured the kind of television presentation of the way that the Premiership mm. is is displayed, and I find that really uh, very impressed by it to be honest. Um, and uh, I think if they like 
asked me for 10 quid to uh so i support aston villa and if they, if they said oh pay 10 quid you can un- unlock the aston villa pack and throughout the year you'll get all the latest kits and all the kind of the latest squad changes um in fact i think the game does this automatically anyway you do get squad changes and people yeah. people's stats changing uh, dynamically based on the season but if it was kind of like a bunch of fan stuff and then just like almost videos and it's kind of like from players actually kind of engaging the fandom of the particular club that's definitely a thing you could sell i think i think it's a thing i would buy and i'm sure they've probably approached <laughs> clubs <laughs> to do that sort of thing and maybe the clubs have been like how much you, like it's just not been a business like business wise it probably maybe isn't viable but i sort of I, it's, it's got me thinking what i would and wouldn't pay for i think fandom is such a powerful thing and you could be a fan of this just the sims as a thing as an experience and suddenly like every small thing that outside out of the context of the sims might seem tiny and insignificant actually if you're a really fan of the thing it is obviously valuable so it's, it's that concept of value is obviously in, ingrained in in the sense of fandom or the sense of you know the, the how passionate you're about a given thing I think it's uh, for clubs. It'll always be that they want to do that stuff themselves. Themselves, like, yeah. Uh, they're definitely getting better at leveraging that fandom. When you know, you for a long time now, you've been able to pay. I don't know what it is, 10, 10 quid a month or whatever to subscribe to Man United t- TV. And, you know, you'll get a bunch of behind the scenes footage and weekly interviews with players and training mm. sessions and all this sort of stuff you get access to. There's a kind of growing amount of that. And I think, um, I mean, I, 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 we're going we're going down a, 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 f- a football cul-de-sac that Marsh will kill himself at the end <laughs> of. I feel like, but uh, um, you know, I, I think the economics around Premier League football are changing quite a lot at the moment. Like, mm. um, we're coming up for renegotiation for like Sky Sports contracts and stuff. Yeah, like that. and it seems like maybe the there's not going to be this huge escalation of the fee that there has been previously, and clubs have been doing more with like broadcasting online themselves and that sort of stuff so for example arsenal have a twitch account where they stream every day old matches and like highlight reels and that sort of stuff Hmm. and it's it's a popular twitch stream there's always thousands of people watching it and yeah i think they're getting better at that sort of stuff it's it's changing that's not a video game observation though that's just a football observation i think i I think when it comes to value propositions and what is worth a subscription, what people will or won't pay for based on how invested they are in a given thing. I think this is something that just comes up all the time in video games. And this is kind of, uh, I don't know whether a Forex game, I don't know. I don't know if I would pay for a subscription service for a Forex game. Uh, I've run out of thoughts. Completely <laughs> 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 run out of thoughts on that. I, my head is full of football. And uh, yeah, we've talked a lot about that. So, <laughs> Sorry, Marsh. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I'm dead already. Um, Marsh, what would you subscribe to? I don't. It's a, it's, it is an interesting question because I I have I don't know. It's a, just about trust, isn't it? It's on an individual basis. I think about what you think is achievable for those developers and whether they will live up to the, that. You know, uh, I've been I've seen the other side of it where I've been playing. Uh, you know, when I'm involved in live games like uh, Heroes of the Storm. Uh, which was free to play, um, and I, I did spend money on it in the end uh, for uh, ridiculous cosmetic items that made my my beetle uh, the love bug. 
Um, <laughs> but there was something very depressing about watching the amount of developer resources dwindle that were being devoted towards the game. Obviously, they would have had a new, they would have had a different revenue stream had people been paying subscriptions to that. But at, at some point in a game's life, presumably that that always happens that that shift where the game is just going to be horribly asphyxiated. Mm. I like how when I asked you what you'd subscribe to, you went straight to horrible asphyxiation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I've just died in a cul-de-sac, so uh, (laughs) these things are on my mind. (laughs) I'm not sure we answered uh, Tom's question there, but I enjoyed that discussion. Yeah, it's just if we'd played these six expansions. I would just say no. no. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Eddie Johnson writes, Ahoy, chessers and checkers. Re your chess em up discussion. Chess. But you can only make moves as randomly drawn from a deck of cards. It exists in real life. And he gives a link to No Stress Chess, which is a physical <laughs> game uh, that you can buy from Amazon if you want to buy things from Amazon. Uh, he says it's fun and works well as a leveling tool when playing chess against tomorrow's adults. Um, he also follows that up with a second email in which he says hey comets and celestial formations i just saw a pretty decent shooting star uh which is unusual for my london uh for course unusual for my london for course evening dog walk adventure unusual for my london for course (laughs) evening i don't that sounds like a good evening to me (laughs) I think he was going on a dog walk in London. That's what we're getting from it. Anyway, and he saw a shooting star. Yeah. And he saw a shooting star. Um, for course, evening. <laughs> I then spent 15 minutes staring at the sky fruitlessly to try and catch another. When in gaming have you had a lucky one-off slash perfect run slash dream experience and spent far too long chasing the dragon? I had an experience last year with Valorant. Um Riot's first-person shooter when it came out. It's it's basically Counter-Strike with wizards. And I really liked Counter-Strike back in the day. And it's it's Counter-Strike enough that there's direct... There's just, there's just weapon, Counter-Strike weapons in this game, basically. They, they, they look, sound, and feel like Counter-Strike weapons. So my very first Valorant match, I think I went like 36 kills to 6 deaths or something my team won and I basically single-handedly led us to victory the first three times in Valorant that I pressed the mouse button each shot was a headshot that killed a person uh, and like I, I, I knew that this was an unrepeatable experience in fact I'm like we just talked about EA the, the paranoia that they're manipulating things like I would. I sat there and thought, "Am I? Is there? Have they done this on purpose? <laughs> have they dropped me into a match that to make it to make me win, um, so that I will keep playing it?" Uh, but my 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 sense at the time wasn't that I should keep playing. My sense at the time was I should uninstall this game because it's going to be all downhill from here. And sure enough, it was. I played like another like fifteen rounds of Valorant or something like that. I never got anywhere close to that first experience. Um, but I was wise enough to not keep pursuing it forever. After that, I I stopped playing instead. I have had a few. Just I don't know. I sort of feel like I think of them as golden rounds, uh, in like first person shooter, competitive shooter contexts. 
where the, the point where you know you've really kind of gone into sort of weird trance state and just deleted everyone uh, with perfect precision is when someone accuses you of cheating at the end. And this is a, it's, it's very common. Uh, so uh, I just like occasionally in a Destiny 2 round, I'll just go like 36 0. I'll just like literally every corner I turn, I will have the shotgun drop on them, or they'll be facing the other way. And that's nothing to do with me. Like, I'm not a, a very good Twitch aimer at all, but I've just been like taking a sensible circuit of the map and maximizing opportunities. Um, and then at the end, someone will say, Oh, type ban Ludo. It's like, Yes. <laughs> yeah, you try and ban me, fool. <laughs> when Budgie look into this, they're going to see my masterful luck in this particular round and how I bested everyone by being slightly behind them and shooting them <laughs> once with an overpowered shotgun. Uh, I also had uh, similar experiences with Titanfall 2, and it feels amazing in Titanfall 2 because you're so mo- mobile as a character. So you could sort of wall run, double jump, through a window, one shot, shotgun, one guy, go to the window, jetpack up onto the roof, snipe someone go down, kill three robots just for points, and then also happen to get, you know, by accident, a headshot on a guy, a, a human player who's standing behind them. And then that carries on for like 15 minutes. And it, it that is a good feeling. That feels amazing. But then you try and recapture it and you sort of like, I find myself second guessing myself. I was like, so how much coffee had I had before I <laughs> went into that round? Did I have, did I have a beer before that? Like, what t- what time of the evening was it? Like, wh- what time of the day was it? Like, was I particularly alert? Was there anything particular about my mental state or anything wearing about- your lucky jumper? Yeah, was it my slippers? My, my good <laughs> my good killing slippers? Was that what what it was? Uh, and this is, get- this is this is what John Wick does. He's just worked out <laughs> the exact pattern of coffee and ties that he needs slippers. to wear. <laughs> <And> slippers. <laughs> so as soon as as soon as he rocks up to the the baddies base, he's at the perfect sort of chemical emotional state to just take down everyone in a beautiful choreography uh and uh, i could never identify it <laughs> basically sometimes you're just in the zone i like I, the zone is a real thing like definitely like it's a sort of concentration that doesn't feel like concentration it's just reacting and, and doing what seems right in the moment and then you, you put in a glorious performance and you could have a, i could have a, like a run of four or five games like that and then suddenly tank and it's all gone <laughs> Uh, and I find, particularly like Battlefield games from Battlefield 3, which I, I played loads of Battlefield 3, and I found that it took me precisely 35 minutes to get good at Battlefield 3 every time I played it. Mm. Uh, so I'd have to get used to the kind of the, the bullet drop and the way the guns fell and what the guns were like. I also had to sort of relearn the game every single time. And between 35 and 45 minutes, I'd have some good rounds. <laughs> I'd, I'd do well in gun game. And then suddenly it would just fall off. And I've, I've not played Battlefield 3 or a battlefield recently actually to be honest uh and i wonder if is it age is it my pajamas is it my slippers <laughs> what is it but i think like you hear about like sorry i don't, I don't mean to compare myself to sportsmen but like sports people um people who do sport have all of these kind of little kind of uh niggling superstitions it's like why was I in the zone at that moment and not this moment? What was it about what was going on around me or what I was thinking about that actually kind of made me really good at this for a bit? I don't know. I think about that quite a lot, actually. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's definitely blood chemistry plays a huge part, mm. whatever's going on in your metabolism at that time, but also your emotional state. I think it's very, it's, I mean, you, this is really telling when you, you get over that that uh, that hump, and you're on the on the sort of downward slide. How infuriating that is, and yeah. how unwise that makes you. 
like I mean, in in poker, you know, there's uh, the oh yeah, people use the word tilting. You know, when you you sort of get you get angry and that you sort of get hungry for for victory in a way which makes you imprudent. Yeah, and that certainly happens really a lot in shooters as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and like this is this is the thing that kills me all the time in in Hunt Showdown, which yes, I'm still playing it. It's still great, but because those guns fire so rarely and they have a long reload time you can't really afford to miss shots and if you're just too hungry for that that kill you will fire prematurely before you've properly aimed and then you're dead you know oh this is this is why it's like i've really wanted to play some uh, hunt with you marsh but i'm like i know i would be the kind of you know in the, every horror movie there's the idiot who dies first <laughs> he just sort of steps on a twig and then loads of crows go up and then he just gets eaten and goes rah, rah. and then suddenly all is lost and i just know i'm gonna be that guy almost every round for the first like however many times i try this thing maybe <laughs> i'm not saying that won't happen but i, I might but, you know i might enjoy your growing frustration <laughs> maybe if i could pinpoint the moment where you start to tilt and we start to like run in Uzi's <laughs> in each hand. That's not even a thing that exists in the game. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> mowing down the giant spider, the only thing I've fought in that game. Mm. Yeah. You yeah. do need to, again, it's a game you need to acclimatize to. Like you say, getting into the into the zone takes some time. Mm. And I, I think it's 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 really bad in that particular game because combat is is quite rare. So it's not like you can spend the first 10 minutes just getting used to clicking on men's yeah. heads. Because mm. uh, it might be 45 minutes before you... <laughs> even find somebody see a man's head yeah, yeah. well they apparently they've um revamped the intro the sort of new as experience for that game um so i'm gonna redownload it this weekend join me this weekend we'll do yeah. it yeah all right i'm downloading tonight yeah <laughs> got a free weekend more cowboys for the swamp yes those are all the questions we had by the way well if that's all the questions that we have I suppose we'd better end the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you for your questions. Please send more to crateandcrowbar at gmail.com. Uh, nope. we, no? Oh, questions, questions at crateandcrowbar. Crate you could tell I don't do the intros and outros very often. Uh, .com. And you could find us all on Twitter if you guys want to give your names, Marsh. No. Okay. Uh, yeah, reasonable. <laughs> Same, to be honest there, Graham. <laughs> I'm at Gones, G-O-N-N-A-S. I don't tweet, but you can follow me if you want. Um, I'm at Mr. Tom Senior, and I, uh, uh, I've been losing followers hand over fist by tweeting about Evangelion and other things. Uh, so you can <laughs> you can enjoy that or not. Um, I think that's... Oh, no, we've got a Discord. That's good. So if you go to crateandcrowbar.com, there's a link to our Discord uh, the, in the top bar. And we've, um, our Discord has given birth. Do you guys know about this? Mm. Uh, Discord is, uh, you know, uh, we did a miniatures podcast for a while, and then I don't know, there's some virus or something. I don't know that may, we, no one could ever play Warhammer together in the same room again. Um, and since then, the podcast has uh, faded away. But uh, the amazing miniatures community that we had has spawned another community called Raw Models, and uh, we'll put the link to that in the show notes, which I'll send to you, Marsh. Is there anything else? That's it, really, isn't it? There's a oh, Patreon. Patreon. Oh, <laughs> the whole thing where we get paid for stuff. Yeah, just um, <laughs> go to Patreon and search for Crank Crow while you'll get us. Um, yeah, all donations appreciated. And also look forward to uh, a new film and telly podcast, which is basically almost all edited. And I just have to get on my ass and get it published. And also, uh, I've got a lovely chat with Chris Bratt, which I did 
about a month ago, uh, which I'll also put up. It's a really nice interview. Nice. Yeah. Um, so look forward to lots of beautiful content and I hope you are all well. Much love. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. I just went solo with that one. Thanks for listening. <laughs> remix. Remix.